Hey, it's Bill Simmons from The Ringer, and this is a podcast called The Rewatchables. We have been doing it really since 2017. It started with how much we love the movie Heat. We decided to structure a whole podcast with categories, most rewatchable scene, who won the movie, Apex Mountain, what age the best. But here's the thing. If you want the full archive, you can hear them only on Spotify for free, by the way. So make sure to follow The Rewatchables on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, every podcast counts. It's Andy Greenwald! This one more than others. I hope so. Andy, what a show we have today. We're going to conclude our coverage of The Bear Season 2 by talking about... Conclude our episodic coverage. I think there's more uh, We'll talk more meat on that, T-Bone. Yeah, man. Right. We, got, we, we already have to go back through and discuss... Uh, what the bear season two means to REM streams. I've already checked. <laughs> I am locked in on that. Uh, in addition to talking about the last four episodes of the mm-hmm. bear though, mm-hmm. Charlie Brooker is on the show today, creator of black mirror. And I talked to him for, I would say close to an hour about every episode of the new season of black mirror. And I love this. He told some awesome stories about the creative Genesis of this season and where black mirror is going. Did you know mm-hmm. that, I don't think we talked about this. So some of these episodes are set in the past. Right. And that that is supposed to be like a sub-label of Black Mirror called Red Mirror. What was he going to tell? He told you this, but well, not no, Netflix. The last episode of the season is like a Red Mirror film. And he was oh, like, in my mind, I, I had this idea we were going to do a whole season maybe of Black Mirror that was called Red Mirror. And it was all set in the past. Wow. Yeah, it's really cool. We get. Well, I'll do a little bit more about Black Mirror when we get closer I, to the interview. I'm really excited that you did this. And I want to say on the record to your face that I'm genuinely happy. Apparently, <laughs> all this idle venom is just poisoning our communication. Because when you told me you talked to Charlie yesterday, I was just really happy for you. I think in general, comms is not a strong suit of the idol. I think that's right. On and off screen. So, that's fair. But really I, the only big news this week. Yeah. I mean, there are some other pieces of information that are flying around the multiverse but as soon as we exited our monday recording yeah we were like okay so we have episode five of the idol we're gonna miss talking about on monday because Uh, oh and we stopped recording not when i stormed out of the studio (laughs) furious at you for your retrograde grade beliefs when we walked out of the studio hand in hand when we were were recording last episode Uh we were like there are six episodes of the idol so saith the internet so saith i you know it was I didn't see a title or anything like that. It was TBD, but we were all operating under the assumption that we had two more episodes of The Idol to go. Right. 
And it turns out we're wrong. That's not true. Yeah. It's that they have announced that there is only five episodes of The Idol and that the final episode will be airing July 2nd. It's called Jocelyn Forever. Is it? Mm-hmm. Okay. I prefer TBD, honestly. <laughs> uh, an interesting curveball, I guess. Well, so there's been, I think the fallout from that was an assumption by some people, I think people who are generally Andy heads, that this was in some sign. Yeah, a lot that, of benefits to that. Yeah, <laughs> huge, <laughs> huge benefits. Um, that uh, because the show was not working or that it was not received well or because I said some strong language Andy on Monday. Um, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an Andy head. That it, sometimes, on some subjects, that it was, an episode was knocked off of its run. Like they just said, no, thank you. We're not going to even air that one. It's called the, the Revenge of the Hairbrush episode. And it was right. just too much. It was too controversial. Um, that's not the case. This was announced originally whenever that was, two years ago, I think it was a six-episode order. From my understanding, it became a five-episode series, possibly even, I can't source this directly, but I think even before the second iteration of the show, it had already fallen to five episodes. This is not scandalous. This is not news, uh, except to us. Except for the fact that we're leading our podcast with it. Well, I I think, you know, we like to put out fires, not just start. Yeah, of course. We're, We're the voice of reason. And we will approach this episode with the same you know, attitude of measured sobriety that we've approached the previous four episodes, right? Except we're going to be doing it two days late. So a little right. bit of house cleaning. So we're doing our next week, we'll have one episode. We'll mm-hmm. we'll record that and put it up on, I guess, Wednesday. And and this is, I want to assure the Andy heads, this is not due to any kind of response to our last few episodes. No, you're not a, being canceled. You, you traditionally have a lot of responsibilities on Independence Day. Yeah, it's weird considering the name of it. Um, And then, so we'll do one episode next week. Andy's going to throw up a uh, annual Baranski barbecue playlist of some sort. I've contributed a few songs to him. Boy, guys, one of the great things about being friends with Chris is there's just radio silence for a minute and then you get like a six or six, tightly curated. Well, you said send me six songs. Yeah, but what would I send you if you told me to send you six? Yes, (laughs) I want to be very clear. Tightly curated six song package of Fantastic songs. Thank you. I loved it. Thank you. Listen to them on the way here, veering all over the road. <laughs> great. When Military Gun is like, I get very high. Yeah. So do I. Yeah. Yeah. These, this is going to be a good playlist. I'm um, excited. And then, yeah, that's it. We'll do a, a show next Wednesday. There'll be Idol and that's some it. other stuff. And then then we're done. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll be back when they do a succession spinoff. Or an Idol season two. No. Um, Okay, I, we should stop beating around the bush because we've got four episodes of The Bear to get to, okay. including the first one we're talking about, Forks, which I alluded to on the last episode as my... Is there anything else you wanted to get into? Nothing, right? You had no other chest-clearing, throat-clearing nice stuff, right? Boy, you really shouldn't give me this opportunity, but no, I, I'm excited to talk about The Bear because it's the best show. Um, Forks is the seventh episode. Yep. It is the, the quote-unquote Richie episode. Uh, it's my favorite episode of the series. Mm-hmm. It does everything that I think this show does well. It does it at like elite. Like Trent Dilfer would be crying if he saw these skills on display. Elite levels. You, you sent me like fifteen crying emojis when when right. you finished this episode. Mm-hmm. I think that part of it is like part of the, the elevation I feel when I watched it. And I've watched this episode a couple of times now. Is how awesome it is to have a show that can just do something like this. Now, it's not the first time that uh, television is like, what we'll do is focus on one character per episode. You know, shout out to Lost and tons of other shows. Um, but the depth that they give Richie by mm-hmm. exploring his character in this way 
And if you look at it in the totality of the first two seasons, I mean, there's there's one way you can look at it and be like, boy, he sure gets exceptionally good at this job in in six days. Uh, on the other hand, it's television and it's elite television. And I think that this is a guy who's been looking for a purpose, as he said in the first episode, where he's been like, he was just kind of lost at sea. He doesn't know how he fits in at this new restaurant. And he's a people person. And, he, and then like, that's what he figures out is like how to work with people, maybe more than working with food and working with electricians and gas suppression lines and all this other stuff. What did you think of the episode? I think it's absolutely stunning. I think it probably probably is. And I and I should just put an asterisk here to say that you, you guys know I'm not a rewatcher. I I think I will rewatch this season. Um so having only watched the season once, I think this is definitely the standout episode. I absolutely loved it. Broadly, I think awards are ridiculous, but if Eben doesn't win an Emmy, then what are they for? Mm-hmm. Here's my big picture thought about this absolutely incredible episode. I do think that the it is la- funny to think about like the Emmys here, yeah, in the way of like all NBA and like them deciding that Jokic and Embiid can both be in a front court, like Kieran Culkin running for Best Actor. Yes, kind of clears the way for Best Supporting Actor here. It does, but also oh, wait, was- they're going to be in different categories. That's right, and that's right, and and I though I do think season two did not make the the submission window for this year because season one. That's right. If I'm correct, the, when You're the right. Emmy nominations are announced in the next few weeks, it's the 31st of May, right? It's like it'll be season cutoff. one that is eligible for these Emmys, even though we just watched season two. Oh. I believe. Okay. Um, so, among the many ways that the last 10, 15 years have completely broken television and our brains about how we talk about it and cover it, I think one of the most undercovered ones is that we've sort of accepted this complete stratification that fantasy means dragons and elves mm-hmm. and gnomes. And reality means Kate Winslet investigating overdoses in Philadelphia. Yeah, overdoses are terrible. And I have a lot of love for both of those planks yeah. of entertainment. The pharmaceutical industry. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clear some space here you for you. I want to hold space should for you. Just, to, just go talk, to Delco Should we for talk about Big Pharma? <laughs> it's hard because I have Chicago accents in my head right now. I know, now too. I know. Um, one of the things that is so incredible about the bear and I think needs to be talked about more is not just its understanding on a molecular level of molecular gastronomy and cooking and the specifics of what happens in a kitchen and what it gets right in terms of reality, quote unquote. It's the fact that this show is a fucking fantasy. Mm-hmm. And I love that it's a fantasy. And when I say it's a fantasy, I mean this guy who we've spent, I don't know, 16 episodes with up to this point is not going to become a three-star Michelin maitre d' in five days. That's preposterous. But it doesn't matter, because what we're watching isn't really about whether they can open a restaurant in like this, at this caliber in 10 days. We're watching the deep emotional journeys of characters that we've come to love. Yep. And every box for the character, everything that gets ticked in this episode are boxes that they've been building, and they've been stacking and they've been organizing. And it's absolutely wonderful to watch. You know, it it doesn't matter that it's quote-unquote implausible. It's a journey. Yeah. And it's how many minutes to take us on this journey, and what moments do they choose to communicate that journey, and how does Evan moss Bacharach play that journey all in one episode? It's really stunning, and I love it. Like with everything with the series, I love it as an episode of television, and I love it for what it says about why we love television. 
I want to stick with this fantasy part because I think that's a really good point. Um, p- part of why I love this episode is some of the references it makes, uh, specifically to Michael Mann's Thief and beyond just using the Tangerine Dream music. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, I think it's uh, Diamond Diary or whatever the track is. Um, by the way, the playlist of the second season soundtrack is, you you could do a lot worse than just to listen to that for the rest of the week. Mm-hmm. But aside from the sort of homages to things like the music from Thief, and even I think in the beginning, uh, the obvious uh, affection Christopher Storer has for documenting the architecture of the restaurant that they shoot in, which I believe is called Ever or is Ever. I'm not sure. It's a Chicago, it's Curtis Duffy's re- restaurant. And this is this episode, this one. In, in Forks, yeah. Oh yeah, this is this is the one of Chicago's highest ranked yeah. restaurants, Curtis Duffy. Um, but just like the way, and th- th- this kind of came up earlier in the season when Sydney gets inspired to make the pasta in a certain way by looking at buildings on her river tour of, of Chicago. But beyond that, it's exactly what you're saying. Like a lot of this episode, especially at the turn when he gets to put on the suit, Richie is... This is like a fantasy of like R- R- Richie gets to become Deckard in Blade Runner. You know, like Richie is a superhero in this episode. And I kind of want, I wanted to ask you, you know, we were a little bit hard on Jamie Lee Curtis's performance in the end of the last podcast when mm-hmm. we were talking about the family dinner. And, you know, I think it, it like, I, I'll just reiterate that that was not like a, an indictment of her. It was more of a just like tonally, it like just kind of missed a little bit left. You know, if everybody else was Tom Glavin, mm-hmm. he, she was like, like a little bit right outside. Would you have preferred a more subtle actor like Abel Tesfaye? In world? <laughs> Is that... No, I'd like Hank Azaria. Yeah, okay. Nice. Um, and one of the arguments in favor of her performance that I saw was that you have to imagine that these people are being seen through Carmi's eyes, which I did not necessarily consider watching okay. that because there are several characters from the bear in that episode. Yeah, and it's not all, and a lot of the conversations are not including He's Carmi, not there. are private. But that like her behavior or her performance is somewhat tweaked by like, it's through the, the eyes of Carmi. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I thought about that in relationship to the super heroic arc that Richie goes on where he kind of like, he learns to accept Tiff has moved on. You know, he becomes this samurai of, of Maitre D. And it, whether or not, like you're saying, it's like five degrees a little bit to the, the dial is turned to the left of fantasy versus reality. And I, I, I think that's a really good point. I, I think the show, and this is also why the show is good, frankly, the show is not interested in teaching us how to properly expedite at this level of fine dining. It, the, the details of what they're doing when they say, you know, four by four all day or whatever, like that's there because those words are accurate. Mm-hmm. But that's not what the show is. That's not what this episode's purpose is. It has a purpose. And you feel that intentionality throughout the whole thing. And the purpose is for a messy person to discover what can come to him with order. Yeah. And what solace he can take well, in also order. Define- and what's cap- what he's capable of within an order. He's looking for a purpose and he finds it in service. Yeah. He finds it when they do the staff meeting and the head maitre d' says, here are the important people coming tonight, Bo Burnham, you know, some some attorney. And then he's like, two teachers from a public school. And it's like on their Instagram, they've talked about how they've always dreamed of going to a, a three-star restaurant and they've been saving for a long time. And he's like, we are breaking out 
the entire or it's like all the supplements all the supplements and, and they not- are getting a tour and they will we will not be dropping a check we're gonna blow their minds and i was like come on man i mean like that's fucking want to have a catch dad stuff when you're watching that and they cut to richie mm-hmm. and you can see the light goes on where he's just like oh yeah this that's what this is about there's also so many subtle moments of like self-worth because you know the last time one of the things the show does so well is it it it's it takes advantage of its serialized nature and so that like and we'll get to this but like the the special dessert for uncle jimmy in 10 is a direct reference to a conversation that jimmy and richie had in six which was five years or however many years before yeah so the idea of richie's relationship with a small indie artist known as Taylor Swift is introduced in, I think, episode two. Uh, yes, uh, when, when he's he, telling his daughter that he like he, he loves her love and he her, loves he just, Taylor Swift, but he just needed a break. And then Taylor Swift comes back because he has finagled tickets, which, by the way, respect. Yes. This guy is the king of Chicago. Richie is the guy who would get Taylor Swift tickets, though. I thought I was the guy that could get Taylor Swift tickets, and <laughs> that's not true. I think they've released true. a few more. I think like they're, they've done the, like... Kaya, I'm stepping down for a minute. I have to, um, <laughs> I have to suddenly sign up for Capital One card. Um... Did you see that they uh, Disney's putting out the sing-along version of Hamilton? Isn't that just Hamilton? What's, <laughs> Isn't that just your car? <laughs> what's the difference? I'm sorry. Yeah. We're going to have to unpack that later. Um, by the way, really, heart, not heartbreaking, but really earth-shattering moment that I thought that for years, whenever we played Hamilton, I was so artful and timed very loud coughing fits during the curses mm-hmm. to a degree that my children never heard the curse words. And then I was just told by my older daughter that she's known the entire time. Yes. And, and if she didn't, she went to a Dodgers game. So she found out. She learned at the Dodger game. And also she was like, because otherwise, like, I was worried you had COVID. <laughs> Not that it's a lot of curses, but there are a couple. Anyway, uh, um, so when Taylor Swift comes back as a plot point in this episode, he's finagled the tickets and he's doing it. He says he's doing it for his daughter, but clearly he's doing this as a giant yeah, gesture a to get Tiff. Tiff back. And it's not... Who, who he's doing things for and his role in it and his own value or worth and having things done for him are so in question that at, the, that, at that moment later in the episode when he blasts fucking love story. Yeah. And Parentheses, Taylor's version. And it's for him. Yeah. It's ecstatic in every possible definition of the word. Yeah, I also love the fact that he never loses him, like his richiness. You yeah. know, like when he's listening to love story, if you watch that scene, he's still screaming, learn to fucking drive at someone. Oh, yeah. So that he can get around them, so that he can drive through the alleys at like 75 miles per hour. I, I also want to just small detail before we move on from it. Shout out that the chef, the stress chef, not Olivia Coleman, but the chef who comes in and is just like, who's responsible yeah, for the, the smudge? Yeah. That's uh, that's my guy, Adam Shapiro, Philly native and founder of Shappy's Pretzels. Really? Out here in LA, who we've been seeing a lot on the picket lines because like the late night hosts keep buying, doing pretzel buys. Really? Nice guy. That's cool. Yeah. He's he's the guy I mean, who, that, who does the like get me the micro basil? Yeah. Wow. He's also an actor. That's cool. Shout out to him. He does a good job. Uh you just mentioned Olivia Coleman. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about six and um kind of the almost getting tweaked out by the 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 famous faces mm-hmm. joining this this cast of of relative unknowns before this show, or not even relative unknowns, but never put in this position. Maybe. Uh, Richie walks into the back of the restaurant uh, on, a, on his last day. And who's there but Olivia Coleman peeling mushrooms. And she is Chef Terry, who's, whose restaurant it is. And um, this is an example of having LeBron James play pickup basketball for five minutes. 
this is fucking pretty impressive. Yeah. And uh, she seems to inhabit that character so completely and fully. And that story she tells, while also in some ways a fantasy, you know what I mean, is so beautiful. And the recounting her father's journals and then also being like, I didn't really get along with him. I'm just like, I don't know, dog. What else do you want from this this medium? She's, I mean, she is one of the best actors we have because yeah. she's totally alive all the time. And I think another thing that the show is is so, so special and smart about is pairings. Yeah. Which is relevant to restaurant yeah. work. Flavor combinations. And especially this season, we've seen how it's not just that like everyone, like Evan Moss Backrack's awesome. Yeah. I think they understand what uniquely makes him awesome as a performer. And part of it, I really believe, is his CV and his life story and his experience, which is he's always been a good actor. Mm -hmm. And he's been working consistently for a number of years. But his particular things that he's good at haven't always found the widest audiences or the best possible spots for him. And he's hungry. We yeah. talked about that a lot when we talked about season one, how there was hunger in the performances, not just in the subject matter of the show. And so I think they 100% know what they're doing when they're like, we're going to put Eben in a room with a simple, almost like acting class activity. Yeah. Repetition. You like have a to move your hands and listen. There's yeah. a business here yeah. with Olivia Coleman. And their relationship is instantly fascinating and compelling and believable. And part of that stems from the fact that this dude can fucking hang, mm -hmm. right, with anybody. Um, but no one let him. And that is a mirror of Richie as well that I that is extra than the text, but I love it. Um, the other thing is worth saying is that like these these high 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 fucking end restaurants do this shit. I was going to ask you this. That's I, real. I don't know. I've, I've had some like good meals, you know, some I had some nice places, but I don't know that anyone's ever been like, hey, like we looked on your Instagram and you put up a picture of. <laughs> Fucking Tyler Durden in Fight Club. He's like, well, I mean, for, I mean, your Instagram is kind of quiet. I yeah, think this is my an Instagram. Argument. I don't think anybody. I don't know. I I don't know what people would think I want at a restaurant, but no one's checked. <laughs> That's fair. I has, mean, have you ever had that experience though, where like somebody has been like, we overheard them talking about how they love slushies so we went and got them a big gulp but made it with like no fresh papaya. But, but that's because you know this. When I dine, I expect complete silence um, at all times. What do you mean? I, I don't want conversation at the table, so I don't want anyone overhearing. I just think everyone should monastically be staring at their food. Do you, are you serious? No. That was weird. You believe in me for this. Because I've had dinner with you 10,000 times. Important dinners. I want that. <laughs> <laughs> no. With the, with the Andy heads. Yeah. Um, no, I, that's never happened to me, but I, you do hear stories and like there's some restaurants that became, a couple times we've seen glimpses. I think Richie was even reading Will Guderas or Guderas book. I don't know how to say his last name correctly. I think that's right. Um, and he was a partner in Eleven Madison Park. He did, he did the front uh, of the house. Oh, yeah, because uh, Carmi says Eleven Madison, dude. Yeah. Yes, and and they would do things like that, and they would bring in whimsical additions from the city, and they were very famous and probably still are for, you know, bring people into the kitchen, and they make you a special drink in the kitchen. You know, the, yeah. making the full showman experience yes. is part of that. Yeah. But I think the bigger note was just taking care of people. And, you know, the, one another thing about the show that I think is worth noting is there are many, many examples of series that are essentially skeptical of their project. I mean, this is a, a hard one-to-one, -one, but The Wire is a show about cops and policing, and David Simon, 25, 30 years ago, has, since, since 25 or 30 years ago, has been extremely skeptical 
of how policing is done in this yeah, country the and the institution yeah. and, the, and the systemic rot associated with it. So there's moments of it of that we cheer for these guys and we love bunk, et cetera, et cetera. But there are also, there's a lot of side eye and investigative eye and interrogative eye. And then we get, we own the city and it's like, cops are, cops are okay. Fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, super cop. I keep trying. I keep trying to bait you. Um, this show fundamentally believes in the restaurant industry and fine dining and service, you know? And you see that echoed throughout, not just this idea that all sorts of knock-around castaway characters can find purpose within it, but that everyone is welcome in these restaurants. Maybe if they scrimp and save and then get comped or whatever, yeah, but right. everyone is welcome. And you see it too, and we didn't really even address this in episode four, but this idea of staging, which is essentially interning for yeah, a short period of time. Where Marcus goes to Denmark. and There is a spirited conversation about that. And I mean that legitimately, like, I think that it is, I think many, many people have experiences like Marcus's where it's just eye-opening and brain-expanding and you are welcomed into a larger community and you get to learn and grow and then that person sends you a parting gift, you know, et cetera. And then there are people who are like, I was a slave, Mm -hmm. you know, and I should have been paid for that and it was abusive. In their staging experience. In their staging experiences, you know, and that it's free labor. And so there is a worthwhile conversation about that. And I don't ding this show at all for celebrating things because it's, again, it's not like, it's not suggesting that that everyone involved in the bear on screen is an incredibly healthy, balanced person no. who's doing great and that this is good for them. That yeah. is, it is not shying away from that, but it is doing the trauma on the personal level and is showing an aspirational piece to the, uh, on the professional side. And, uh, I, and I think that's consistent. Yeah, I think it's consistent as well, uh, especially in the larger context of the entire season. Mm-hmm. Before we get to the next episode, I just wanted to say that lots of things happen on this show where you're like, I'd really like to eat that. Or like now all of a sudden I'm in the mood for this. Mm -hmm. Very strange. But just the way that Richie is like, that old fashioned's not going to drink itself. Do you guys want some Bacardi and diet? I was like, should I have a fucking Bacardi and diet? (laughs) You you are very susceptible. When is the last time you've had a a rum and Coke? I think it's been a minute. Yeah. It's been a minute. But (laughs) Kai, a big rum and Coke person? I try to stay away from dark liquors. Wow. She's like every single time she shocks me. Did you did, did you think she was a big like like I didn't think she was like a big bourbon person, McAllen but like actually, you know what? I feel like I she, Kai is a tequila soda person, right? Yeah, that's a nod. She's nodding. Yeah. Um. I, anyway, I, I, I was the most like amazing thing about the show is that it made me fucking want to eat deep dish pizza. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this, this is one of your bits. It's not. This is one of my strongest bits, which is that it, that's a disgusting food. No, it's just casserole. Yeah. Just relax. Okay. But that looked good. Yeah. He did a nice job of that. All right, let's get to the second, the eighth episode. Okay. In the fantasy version of The Bear, Mm -hmm. this is the season finale. Mm. The sweetness, the culmination of all of our shared experiences, watching the fire suppression test. I'm going to call my girlfriend. I have personal growth. Everything kind of like is right on the precipice of everything that's going to happen. Like the next night, it's like, you know, it's not friends and family night, but it's basically like their opening night is yeah. to know that they're going to open. And um, I think that this episode is fantastic. It, it The only thing that dims it is that it's coming off the back-to-back double-barreled brilliance of six and seven. Yeah. But what do you think of this idea that like the fantasy version of the bear, the like, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the... Uh, I don't know the superstore version of the bear. I don't. I don't even know. But like well, a version, there's a version of the bear that ends with like everybody's high five, and it's just like Coach K was right. Carmi's fixed. Richie's the best maitre d in the world. Nat figured it all out. We passed the fire suppression test. We're gonna be able to pay off Cicero. Yeah, Ebra's back. 
you know? I, 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 well, a couple things. I think that eight, which I loved, is an argument for dropping the season at once. Because I tried to ration out my watching of the show because I love it so much, but yeah. I did do seven and eight together. Mm-hmm. And in one, in one sitting, I mean, not just for the podcast. And so the specifics of it don't pop for me. Yeah. I remember the vibe and spending, I, everything you're saying, I certainly remember the episode. But I think this was an argument for why it ultimately is okay that they dropped it just because I, I really do feel, I think about the season like a season in a way that I'm not sure I would have otherwise. You know, I, yeah. I, even though there are standout episodes, I feel that it was all connective tissue, it was all building to something. Um, it's funny because like there are lots of shows in the last couple of years where the people behind it have said, well, we, we think of this as a complete statement or a seven-hour movie, yeah, uh, ten-hour movie. Yeah. This actually is like a six-hour movie in, with, a, in a lot with of With a way. couple mini-movies. Yeah, well, the there's some chapters, you know, and I think what the way we broke up this season is, is like if we wanted to, we could have done seven and eight and then we could have done nine and ten. There are some, mm-hmm. there's some space between those, those two sets of two. Mm-hmm. But... You're right. This is a complete statement as like a... And I, I guess I do understand why they put it up at once. I think this is this episode really also reminded me of something else that makes the show unique, which is... Well, I mean, first of all, I, I don't know what like the discourse is about this, and it's a half-hour show, so when it's nominated for Emmys, it'll be in the comedy category, which mm-hmm. is partly true. It definitely has comedy DNA and is very funny. Um, but it's also, to my mind one of, if not the most compelling dramas on TV um, because of the way it, it focuses on characters and emotions. And I think when we first started talking about the season, you talked about Friday Night Lights. Yeah. And um, I think it's a really great comp because you might be able to do better than I can with this, but I was trying to think about the last major drama, successful, broad, broadly popular television prestige drama that you rooted for the people in and you rooted for their success. Now, obviously, when you watch Mad Men, you know, I didn't wish ill on Don Draper. Mm-hmm. Everybody roots for Peggy. But the thrust of the show was so much about Don's failings and his fucking up and his fits of ego and cruelty and things. And also the fact that it was a not just a, a period piece, but a time bomb because we knew that his era was ending even if he didn't know it. Yeah. It kind of robs you of some of that feeling. We talked about succession where the trick of weekly television is we we wished well for these people, but we weren't really rooting for them because their project was installing a fascist. Yeah, I think the intensity in of succession creates a sensation that feels like I'm rooting for, but is yeah. actually just emotional investment. Yeah, you're root I mean, you're rooting also for more highs. You're rooting for it's the it's the Walter White thing, um, both as a metaphor and actually literally, right? And, and and it leads to the kind of the bad fan analogy of like, wait, are we rooting for him to like get revenge even though he's a a monster. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this is just a long-winded way of saying we root for these people. Absolutely. We want them to succeed. Yeah, that is that and is like when you're watching Friday Night Lights and you're like, I can't, like nothing it, can happen to Landry. It's right? a different sensation. And so I, I think that it helps my viewing in the sense that I, I knew they were going to pass the fire suppression test. Yeah, well. It didn't matter. I also, and we'll we'll get to this in a moment, but like I'm not that worried about Claire and Carmi's future. You know, whatever it may be, that's not what the show is is doing. You know, it, it's anyway. This is a long winded way of saying maybe it, it should be in comedy because this one of the codes this the, the bear cracks is that this is this is a Mike Sure show but a drama. Right. This is Parks and Rec. That's what. Yeah. Tweaked. Yeah. In that there are situations 
their comedy, but really their characters, and we're really pulling for them. And guess who else is pulling for them? Chris Storer and Joanna Callow and everyone else who works on the show, they, are, they don't have a cruel bone in their body. And if the show is ever going to run out of road, in terms of its, its, um, its, its crackle, its spark, it'll probably be because everyone's the best at what they do. Except, and everything's fine. So, and that's, we're way away from that. A lot of Mike Schur shows mm-hmm. have started out, well, not a lot of them, but they have started out one place and they end in another, or they develop into something else. Mm-hmm. Famously, Parks and Recreation, the first season, the Amy Poehler character is a little bit closer to early versions of Michael Scott. Oh, yeah, it's cringier. But abrasive, Mm -hmm. and nobody likes this person. And then as the season goes on and as the show goes on, she becomes like the kind of, not only the central character, but the heartbeat, and everybody wants her to be happy, and everybody wants to do right by her. Yes. So the thing that I find fascinating about the last two episodes of The Bear is that they reposition Carmi as the biggest, his his own worst enemy, Mm -hmm. right? And in that sense somewhat of the worst enemy of the restaurant itself because he's obviously not healed from a lot of the psychic trauma that he's experienced as part of being part of the Brazado family, but also his relationship to success and his relationship to leadership mm-hmm. and helping people and running a team. It's like you can rub your chest as much as you want to be like, I'm sorry, but What's clear over the... I'm going to talk about these two episodes together because it's the opening and... and eight, nine, or nine and ten. Nine and ten. Yeah, nine and ten. Eight, it's because it's like opening night, kind eight, of. Eight, let's just once again say, I, it's bizarre to me how good Maddie Matheson is on this show. I know. I know. And they and watching them figure that out and just fully just letting him be a major part of yeah. major scenes. Yeah. And be funny and sweet. It's just, it's cool. Um, But nine and ten are essentially like making Carmi into the Richie of the show mm. again. Like where it's like, who's the guy who doesn't fit in? Who's the person who, who doesn't, doesn't seem a, to have a purpose? Yeah. Who's the person whose home life is so fucked up that it's bleeding into his work life? It's basically Carm. But it's also complicated because what, the, the thing that he identifies as the problem, and I think inaccurately, is that he's actually becoming a human. Right. Um, it's not that he's... He goes to one party. Goes to a party <laughs> once and look what happens. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's an interesting... Um, it, it's an interesting wrinkle to it. One... Again, I think that that, that it, it's low-key incredible that they pick their spots because, yeah, they're streaming, so they can have a 38-minute episode and a 29-minute yeah. episode. So they, 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 give, they take what they need. But they do broadly try to keep it within the realm of half 30 hour. 30 to 40, yeah. And because of that, there was less real estate for Carmi Claire than I thought there might be considering its importance to him and to what happens to the restaurant. But I do not feel like it was, at the end of it, I did not feel cheated. I didn't feel like we, because they picked their spots. And even the, the way that the finale begins, I think it's the finale, right? It's the montage of them mm-hmm. in bed together. Mm-hmm. That's doing work. And that's good visual storytelling to sort of lay a little bit more groundwork so we understand where he's at. Yeah, what if they've been dating for like six weeks? If you kind of do the math. Yeah, and and we haven't seen a lot of it. But again, you don't have to see all of it. Like that's also such a, a, it's a a storytelling trap that I think a lot of writers fall into um, that you have to to tell everything when you could just show it in a few glances. Um. Do you, do you want to talk about nine specifically? Yeah. Okay. What's your what's what's your nine's good? Wait. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I worry we get into this finale like we're getting into well, like. I thought nine might be a good place to talk about 
the central relationship of the show, which is actually Carmen Sydney, yes. right? Like for as much as you know, Claire emerges as a love interest, and we get a lot of stuff with Richie, mm-hmm. and we see the larger Burzato family. I think, even though they don't spend a ton of time in frames together, a lot of this season is about like whether or not these two people who don't trust one another will learn to trust one another. What if, I mean, I, I mentioned Don and Peggy a second ago, mm-hmm. and that was intentional because they were on my mind. And it's, it's in nine, and it's all over 10, particularly the scene with a screwdriver under the table. Mm-hmm. It's so fulfilling as a TV fan and as a fan of these actors and characters that the show fucking does it. It writes the conversation that we're feeling, that we're interested in, that Don and Peggy never really had because, well, yeah, yeah. because of the power structure and the power dynamic and also what that show was doing. And, and also like spread the out time that it was. Yeah. And the time that it was. Yeah. There is something that is, you know, it, it can be compelling and horrifying, the level of vulnerability and the lack of filter that the Brazato family writ large, but yeah. also kind of broken people in this industry have. And so they have the conversation about what they are for each other while they're fixing a table, you know? And then, as to your point, then a minute later, they are their worst selves again. Mm-hmm. And they've, they've, they've installed their own fire suppression system in their relationship with the rubbing of the chest, which I think is really fascinating. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it, I, I, it didn't forget. You know, I, I, this, this, is, this is the Chris Farley interview part of the show. No, no, because I was going to say don't forget one of the most is this relationship. The Don and Peggy thing is really interesting because I think that in some ways, over the course of Mad Men, you can make the argument that Peggy is transforming from this pretty mousy assistant mm-hmm. to into Don. Right, like that, she's picking up on some of his genius, but also some of his the ways he moves through the world. And, yeah, he's modeling. Yeah, and you know when Peggy is kind of she's modeling aloof yeah. in the creative room that she sits in with Stan and everybody, like she is modeling Don's behavior, right? Because that's what a leader does. And I was thinking about that's a really good kind of comparison to make because as you see Sid increasingly using Tums and Pepto and Roids or whatever throughout the mm-hmm. season. And getting more and more stressed out as she walks around Chicago and sees restaurants that are op- up for lease or up or closed, and including some that she had visited on her food tour mm-hmm. to find inspiration for the menu. And I think that that idea that you know, am I a partner and am I an employee? Like, it, is everything a handshake or do we have things written down in contracts? And is this guy going to be here for me? And you can kind of see her turning into Carmi. I always like low. I, I mean, I'm so fascinated by this idea that people who cook and make things that need to be tasted are like smoking and pounding Pepto. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> and it's just like almost like they don't have the stomach for it, but they're creating it for like they other don't, people. And they keep denim in their oven. I mean, that is, right. I mean, I remember many chefs do this. I remember like David Chang doing an interview like 15 years ago, being like, I don't have any food in my house. I have a bottle of sriracha. Yeah. If you watch Chang's, like I, what I cook at home, I mean, he's got two young kids, but he's basically like noodles. Now he's just microwaving potatoes. Yeah. And it's, it looks good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think um, it really raises an interesting question that the show isn't afraid to look at, which is what is closeness? Because these relationships are quite literally forged in a fire. Like when they are in the shit, when they're in the weeds, when they're in service, they are depending on each other on an on a existential level. And they're saying things that you would never say to people and they're admitting things and they're showing parts of themselves that, you know, we've been doing a podcast 12 years that we've never seen from each other. Um, yeah. And then... But honestly, like how, how many stressful, really stressful experiences have you and I experienced together? 
We used to drive on 95 a lot. Yeah, but I was always incredibly chill about that. We've been to a lot of Sixers games. Yeah. You think that counts? No, not when we were watching them. That was like the Doug Collins era. Like that was the... (laughs) No, the Larry Brown era. But yeah, but like when we were going to Doug Collins games, that was like the epitome of no expectations. That's true. Okay, well, maybe it was more fraught for me, It was like tense before like we would start filming like a Game of Thrones after show, I guess. That's true. I I think I I had a little bit of a uh, Sydney freak out right before we did that Atlanta panel with the Glovers and the entire cast and crew. You threw up in front of your dad. We are the the natural choice. I continue to believe to represent that show. It's true. Um, So, no, but what I mean is that closeness is so wild and I think people chase that. And as literally to your point, even made in jest, like that's not present in a lot of people's lives or or relationships. But what is it really? How close are you? Is Is closeness alone enough or is there also a level of empathy that's necessary yeah you know because the thing is about these brazados there's no filter and we saw it when unspeakable things are said and done at the dinner table and half the people there just go slack-jawed like they've been like like what's her name in the matrix when she says not like this and they unplug her in the real world i mean that's sorry spoilers (laughs) for our favorite character what's her name guy not only having the bear spoiled for her but also the matrix (laughs) kaya has a has a little airplane bottle of bacardi that she's just reaching for right now um I, you know, and, and so, but, but they say these things and then what do they take? Like what words land inside of them? And, and I, you think about the, the walk-in scene with, um, Carmi and Richie, where there's a power shift, there's a emotional, uh, re-leveling of the relationship, right? Where Carmi's being a lunatic yeah. and Richie's being mature. And my takeaway from that scene, which was so incredible and the, sh- the shooting of it as if it was a split wall was brilliant and it allowed them to play off of each other. But when he's yelling, at a certain point, like three quarters of the way through, Richie just starts yelling, I love you. Yeah. And is it heard? Does it matter? Or is it all just noise? I mean, that's that's what you feel in these moments of service from this wild, brilliantly staged um, finale. Yeah. And we've noticed we jump right to the finale. I mean, Sydney cooking uh, sugar and omelet is a beautiful moment of television mm-hmm. and makes sense. You know, mm-hmm. Everything about it was considered, not just that a simple omelet is the test of all great chefs, but then she can't help but like be her and she puts chips on it, which sounds awesome. I mean, it looked delicious. Yeah. I'm not a huge chives guy. Really? Yeah. You bumped on that. Do you like, do you prefer like a sprinkle of no, margarine? No, I'm just expressing like a personal preference. Like I'm not, when I'm having an omelet, this I don't need a ton of chives. This is the most tense moment of our relationship <laughs> since the Doug Collins era. <laughs> since I was like, We're, we'll be fine. There's no traffic. You would always say that. Okay, let's kind of. I mean, is there anything else about nine that you wanted to hit? I, I, you know, the ACDC drop, the having Sydney call it at the end, that's great. Um, the thing that I noticed in nine, even as I was watching mm-hmm. it for the first time, is the thing that becomes apparent in 10. And I was going to ask you, restaurant expert that you are, yes. what's Carmi supposed to be doing? I thought you were going to be like, aren't walk in refrigerators built better? And the answer to that is yes. But it's like that whole season, the fridge has been this metaphor for Carmi taking his eye off the ball and his like need to approve yeah. everything and not actually follow through with some some of these things. And by the way, wait, I just want to put a quick pin in the Carmi thing because I was I was texting with a chef pal, uh, Daniel Patterson, who's a very accomplished cook, and he loves the show. And it's interesting. Chef Bragg. Because you know, from you. kind of. Yeah. Um, no, only because his wife, Sarah, who is our old friend and listens yes, to this show, I was just gets really mad when I don't mention their names on the podcast. So I can be bought 
I expect an <laughs> omelet with potato chips in return. But no, but I, I thought it was interesting I was uh, to hear what he thought about the show because we've talked before about how people inside the bubble of something are often the most critical when it oh, is. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, in, yeah. In, in the example we always reach back for is like when The Wire showed journalists. We were like, all right, that seems a bit far-fetched. But when they show anybody on a dock, near a boat like, I'm like that's authentic that is fucking Encyclopedia Britannica <laughs> yeah you know? I know I thought what was interesting was his point was the emotional storytelling is so first of all triggering but also from his experiences but also so right on that the details don't matter including the fact that all walk-in refrigerators are built with a way to open the door from the inside Okay, so that is a, a convenient storytelling one, but it's a storytelling crutch, but it's a smart one. I'm sure Christopher's story is going to be like, actually, this is the, how he it would have gotten blocked in. Yeah, I'm sure, but yeah. at the same time, who gives a fuck? Yes, right? right, and that's and I love that that's accurate. So in terms of what Carmi's job is, that was a little unclear too. I guess he could have been like. Uh, the way Joel McHale was for him in the flashbacks of what maybe was 11 Madison Park. And standing behind Sydney and being like, you're fucking up. (laughs) Except not doing that, right? So maybe your question is even more important because there is no role model for him for that role, Yeah, right? We didn't see Chef Terry doing anything from Richie's POV, even when he was helping or observing the expediter who maybe had a crush on him, but maybe we'll revisit. Sure. But um, not we, us, maybe the show will. Yeah. Um, no, you and I will. <laughs> we're going to get to the bottom of this in our, in our new podcast form, series. form fan fiction. <laughs> I, I would. Richie and Lisa, yeah. Um, it, it's one of those things where asking that question is the right thing to do because then it actually works when he's gone. Mm-hmm. And what's bothering him the most in that moment? Uh, uh, so that, that he misspelled radicchio or that he's unnecessary? The, role, the roles, though, are Richie's going to work front of the house and like kind of oversee the dining room and make sure everything is working well out there, right? Yeah. And then Sid is doing expo. So, and so is, Natalie's maitre d' and manager. Uh, Richie is is uh, captain, I okay. guess, front of house captain. Sydney is head chef? Yes, or she's CDC. Chef, CD's chef de cuisine. Yeah. So she is expediting and running her And brigade. Tina is, is sous chef. Tina is her, is her sous chef. Right. So, she, so among the people cooking at the various stations, she's... Right. The first. What about, um, does the guy smoking meth, where does he fit into the org chart? He's just the fucking king of the world. <laughs> he's feeling great. But as Marcus say, like he says it makes him a rock star or whatever. And they were him, like, he did cook, they're like, he cook was, those carrots really well. <laughs> they were kind of into it for a minute. I, I think that as anyone who's watched even half of an episode of Gordon Ramsay's Hell's Kitchen understands that like people swinging in and like taking over stations and moving around is just part of it. Okay. So now whether Marcus's journey from guy at the sandwich shop to the greatest baker in right. North America who can also step in on Garde Manger. Okay. I mean, I I would I would sacrifice myself for Lionel Boyce at yeah. this point, so I'm fine with it. It's a, such a beautiful performance. But that's the way it flows. The TV-ness of the, nece- the necessary t- TV-ness of the show comes out in the finale in, in a way that mm-hmm. was, uh, I loved the finale, you know, and I, I actually thought that I think for me, actually, the Jamie Lee Curtis appearance in the finale is not like it doesn't like balance out the this the episode six, but I thought she, you know, her appearance there, which is sort of hovering over the episode as soon as Natalie and like mentions that she's invited her, it's like you know she's coming in some capacity. Yeah. What did you think of her scene and like 
Mm-hmm. The, the partner that she had, which is Pete, who is essentially like a punchline sure. throughout this series until now. There were a couple interesting swings in the finale. And just to put a button on what you were saying before, I think in a perfect world, Carmi's job in this friends and family would be he could go out and pour pour the broth for Claire. Yes. And that's fine. Right. He should have time but to do that. To, like a million stars are exploding inside of his head when he's doing that. Yes, he right. can't let go and right. be present in that, which is what informs what happens later. Again, I think the show is mirroring its characters and in the construction of a menu because you have to, there are things that fall along very conventional lines. And I love that, you know, that feel good, like the Richie and, and Neil kind of like, you're, I'm scared, whatever. Richie stepping in, like we felt that coming. We saw him observing it and we knew he wasn't going to fuck it up. And that mm-hmm. feels great. You know, there, there, there's something to be said for surprises, but there's also something to be said for being rewarded for knowing how stories are going to feel and slipping into the rhythm. I think there are things that it did that were like, you know, the way Sydney splashed the green sauce mm-hmm. on her plate. Uh, Moments are, of inspiration. Which are showy, yeah, but controlled. And f- under that um, heading, I would put the oneer, which I didn't time. But there is a section of this episode when they were going in and out of the kitchen, yeah. table to table, and whether it was a true runner or they like hid some cuts, who cares? Well, it's kind of cool because the story behind the first season mm-hmm. oneer is that they had built this elaborate set with moving walls, and they had run the you know like mm-hmm. basically rehearsed it and run the scene like seven or eight times to, to, to shoot it, and how intense it was. But it was also a reflection of the ingenuity with what is a relatively low budget show, mm-hmm. and. The second season obviously had a lot of expectations and the restaurant itself grows to the extent that they have two sets now. So they can go in and out of a door and have a a warmly lit room and a harshly lit room. But they spend all their money on the needle drops. So it's still a low budget show. (laughs) Taylor's version doesn't come cheap. I can't fucking believe that. Um, Twice. Twice in the episode. So... It's funny but, that Richie wasn't like, no, I think Scooter Braun deserves some royalties, so I'm going to play the old version of Love Story. Oh, so yeah, so, we're, so the man made some good decisions and now he's punished for it? That's very Richie. <laughs> um, but you know what I mean? That like, that was bravura filmmaking. It was awesome. It was exciting. It felt, it fed the adrenaline of the moment. It was, but it was, a, it was appropriate. It was not show-offy. Yeah. And I loved it. And it's, I think it's relevant to bring up because it's a crucial part of the artistry of this episode, but it's not the headline. It's not what matters most. And I love that. Um, for what matters most in the show. One of the other swings, like maybe one of the dishes that they could have 86, but didn't, was we're going to hang the emotional fulcrum of the episode on a returning Jamie Lee Curtis and Pete. That's wild. I mean, we've already established that they take these chances. I mean, Maddie Matheson's arc to being an important emotional anchor. Sure. That, that all of that reflects what they're willing to do and the trust they have in the people that they've hired. No, I mean, having Richie become the heartbeat of the show mm-hmm. is like if they had just been like, Woody is now Sam, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I, like they, they, they will do that. They will take a shot like that. To our younger listeners, that's Cheers, not Toy Story. Right. <laughs> um, but all of this is Did to say... Did you think it was Toy Story? Guy, <laughs> we... <laughs> Put the Bacardi down, guy. This come is, on. <laughs> this is good. This is why we podcast for all generations. Yeah. Um, I thought the Pete part of it was great. I thought that guy stepped up. I thought that he he cried really well on camera, which he is did hard. a good job crying. Yeah. I also think it's just part of the show's fantastic toolkit, which is to say, everyone hates this guy, but he's in the family, and he loves her, so right. that's okay. And- 
And also, there's nothing wrong with Pete. There's nothing wrong. No, that's, it's just that's people funny. are just like, fuck you, Pete, yeah. even though he's just like, I'm just a nice guy who brought a tuna casserole yeah. no, and I didn't know. That's you know? what's so funny about it. Yeah. Right. But I thought the Jamie Lee thing, it bumps me again. because I, I, I just want to say, so I know what you're going to say. Mm-hmm. I rewatched it last night. Which and six I, or ten? Ten. Okay. And I just want to say that I did think that the moment she finds out Natalie's pregnant is quite, quite amazing. You know, her yeah. like, oh, fuck. Like, I'm so far from these kids that I didn't recoil. know. Yeah. No, it... it. But she's so... Ni- like, she's trying to be nice to Pete about yeah. it. Yeah. I think that my one note, and I haven't rewatched it, and I'd like to rewatch it again, was I think something the show should be commended for is the creation of this character and the depiction of this character and the unflinching way it looks at her as a narcissist and the way that that has abused mm-hmm. her family and those around her. And because the the tenor of this episode was so tender and gentle and loving towards its characters, even though Carmi goes through it, I, I almost felt it was I almost felt it was too soft. Which isn't to say I didn't want her to come in oh, and start breaking glasses. I actually see that's funny that you well, should say that. I thought that this was a pretty harsh episode. Well, it's a it's a hard episode. Harsh but I think episode on the characters. Like everybody who they all go through this night, and when you look at the end of it you could say that person had a bad night in some ways. Well, there's, there's, there's different gradations to that. Like Marcus ultimately had a good night until he finds his phone. Right. Um, the dude who's just high on crack had a good night. Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, I think his night's just of, beginning. Until he runs out of crack. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I guess what I mean but is... But Sydney's throwing up in the alley and is kind of like, is this what it's going to be every night? That's my read. Yes. On, and like basically after seeing the ticket machine gurgling out of paper yes right so is the implication that they got all the meals done or that they actually missed a bunch of meals again i don't i didn't understand the implication of that other than well because that's the that's jaws from the first season where she didn't she turned it on accidentally but didn't turn on the ticket or she turned on deliveries and they all hit it once right I, i i think that the implication was that the night was objectively a success right in that they got it done, they pushed through. Um, so I, I took it more metaphor, not that they were missing things, but that it would never end. Gotcha. That, okay. that this night is nothing to be celebrated because it is. And that's why she's outside throwing up and can't so. accept love from her father, really, you know. But she does. I mean, again, that's the that's the the show can do both. Like the the Robert Townsend is so wonderful. I just love every time he's on screen. I love what he's doing and with his, his character. He, him as the bat like the sort of counterweight to Jamie Lee Curtis, too. Yeah, I think that's important too. That it's a, it's a it is a. He's just like anything you want, but when he's like, "This is the thing." Yeah, what that would mean to someone is really beautiful, and the show had room for that. I, you're right. I, I don't think it was a soft episode, and I don't think the show is is just. I mean, this is a unfair. I don't mean to do a drive by on Parks and Rec, a show I loved, but because it was a comedy, ultimately everything worked out always. Yeah, and I think the show is positioning itself correctly where I don't think any of these people are going to step into an elevator that's not theirs. Kai, that's a spoiler for the 80s show, L.A. Law. <laughs> um, but uh, this certain things in their life aren't going great. Yeah. It, might, it might still break down. Um, look, I, I, we should table the, the, the Jamie Lee thing because clearly she's going to be a part of the show going forward because she didn't even see her kids in this episode. So I, I think... Instead, it's probably best to look at this episode as the one of my favorite types of storytelling, which is the graduate ending, mm-hmm. right? Where you kind of get what you want, and then we linger on, wait, what did you want? Mm-hmm. What's it going to cost? 
Kaya, that was a spoiler for the 1960s <laughs> classic film, The Graduates. That ends this with... This is a good bit. Yeah. Um, she, she clearly loves she it, loves too. She loves it. And um, I'd like to thank everyone. This is my last episode of The Watch. Um, You're beating Kaya to the punch. Yeah, I think it's fair. I think I've served my purpose. One thing that was really fun to think about, and again, smart, smart calibration, we don't really see the food. There aren't a lot of shots. We barely see the menu. There, we, we see it, and it's... It's like welcome broth, T-bone. I mean, like, when I saw the menu, I was like, oh, chaos menu all year, and you're just kind of like, what the fuck are you guys making? And But ultimately, it's the brisado menu. Yeah. You know, it's... It's, it's the seven fishes it, There's menu. seven fishes, and there's there's a, there's a homey soup, and there's um, uh, the cannoli. Yeah. That is everyone, you know, it's it's a beautiful it's idea. It's the Michael. It's the yeah. Michael, they yeah. call it. So... So, but but I, I think the show is well served again, understanding what story it's telling by not lingering on a lot of people being like, that's incredible. Because some of it probably was incredible and some of it was probably fine. Yeah. And also, who cares? We're not eating. Well, the food. MVP of the night is kind of like the the things that Richie learned in the in his staging and and the and the reading about Eleven Madison Park, you the, know. The service wins. It's like bringing out soda to, to Sid's dad. You know, and bringing uh, the chocolate banana to Cicero, and just like the little touches that they're doing, you know, and I think that I guess that's where I was kind of going with like it ends on kind of a bittersweet note. Carm's in this lock, this walk-in fridge. He's, uh, mm-hmm. un, you know, unintentionally, but like you could say intentionally, you know, pretty much ended his relationship with Claire by screaming behind a a door that he is losing his fastball because he's like mm-hmm. trying to find love and joy in his life. And it turns out Claire is on the other side of the door when he thought it was Richie, right? Or whoever, or Tina. And, uh, you know, everybody actually ends in a kind of place of, of, of real uncertainty, I think, with the exception of Richie, who also is like, you know, Carm's supposed to be the guy, you know, did I basically tie my horse to another Michael? When right. he calls her Donna, when he's like, okay, Dee Dee. And he's like, what the fuck did you say? Like, he's like, are all of you guys so fucked up that yeah. you can't, you, you're, I'm just now attached to another chaos agent. Well, that's also the thing that goes back to this idea of is closeness have any value if it's abusive? Mm-hmm. Does closeness have any value if it doesn't have any empathy or recognition or listening or hearing attached to it? And, you know, you see there's a version of episode six where you listen to Melania's Stevie, Steven, Stevie. his words, and you take them at face value. Where he's like, I love doing this every year because I'm with all of you and we are connected and traditions matter. You could also look at it like these people are masochists. This is an abusive circumstance that they could walk away right. from at any time right. if they respected themselves more and they don't. Well, this is Which like is the the sort of, I think, great reckoning that people everywhere are having about their professional existences, which is like... I know one person that's <laughs> having it at this very moment. This idea of like whether or not your professional life should be a surrogate family and whether or not your experience in your professional environment should be life or death or should feel that way. And, you know, I think you and I grew up at a time when people intentionally, and I think just because of like the market forces around us and whatever, like created a world in which like, if you fuck this up, the world is going to end. Mm-hmm. Even if it was you missed a period in a, in a story or you didn't file records right away, uh, you mm-hmm. know, in, the, in a story you were working away. Like, you know, just like absolute, like crazy people, like throwing shit at you mm-hmm. and stuff. And, you know, 
I think that that's good that we've had like this great like kind of conversation about like what are we supposed to be doing in these places for a, not always a lot of money, you know? And for not a long time. Yeah. This is not like you're putting in sweat equity and taking on abuse for a long career. Yeah. The if- family side of it is interesting because I, we both come from very small families. Mm-hmm. I'll speak for both of us. But for me, weirdly, I would go back to the Burzato dinner. Like I would be like, well, that, like that's what, that's, 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 that's our that, family dinner. That's you know? the fireworks you missed in the Doug Collins era. You know what I mean? The action is the juice. You <laughs> yeah, know what I mean? You. I just would go, I think I would just be like, well, that's what happens, you know, um, at dinner at once a year. And I would probably be more like Stevie. I'd be like, I do like doing this. And then you and Sarah Paulson would go back to New York and go to some <laughs> of the nice restaurants that you like, like there. Thank fuck we don't have to do that for 364 more yes. days. Yes. Thank God this is just like, Yeah. You'd opt out. You'd be like, I'm in... I'm in La Jolla. My phone is off. Really nice. Yeah. I'm in the walk-in and I've locked the door. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Well, I think that what anything is worth is one of the thesis questions of this show. And it's it's a very different calculus for Robert Townsend as Sidney's dad. His name Emmanuel. I I feel like we should be calling him by his character name. When he says hey, this is the thing. It's incredibly empowering and it's incredibly meaningful to her, but he is also not inside of her body, Mm -hmm. understanding the toll that it takes on her and the realization that that machine's going to keep spitting out tickets and she's going to keep throwing up. And so what is that even, It's in some ways it's even more. Well, and they're all, I I love how so many of these characters are creating uh, circumstances that maybe are not self-evident where it's like, Carmi and Sid are both like, this is the last time. Like, I can't do this again. So if this mm-hmm. doesn't work, I'm out. And Do we believe that? Well, I I believe that they they believe it. Mm-hmm. I believe that they think like that, like there is a world in which they could have just served upscale sandwiches, you know, and probably like let that place keep humming for a little while. But Carmi wants to do something different. And then Sid wants well, to get a star. And then, you know. Well, if they were at peace inside of themselves, yeah. they would be. Right. There's a lot not. of like dignity and being like, I serve the best sandwich in Chicago. Like, that would be pretty amazing. And it would be a better life. Right. Um, and you close it three. But at, they don't understand you know? what a better life right. means, what it would look like. They have no modeling Well, they're it. compulsive, they too. Yeah. It's like Sydney's putting out the, in the first season, she has to do her her meal that goes to the critic. Yeah. And she sneaks out that plate, and that guy is like, well, this is amazing, you know? Yeah. I I think the show is amazing, obviously. I think we're really lucky to have it. I think that everything that we said in the conversation about the first season about what like a happy story this was came out of nowhere, celebrates all the things we love in TV. It's about a subject that we're interested in. And also that it just seemed to delight people and unite people Mm -hmm. was a really, really nice thing. I feel like all of that is true again and magnified. And I feel like how hard that is to do it again, much like in a restaurant, uh, can't be overlooked, cannot be undersold, Um, that that they grew it that they took the responsibility of all that pressure of people being like, we love your show. We can't wait for it to come back. And they were like, well, fuck, let's, what are they, let's go. Yeah. Let's fucking go. Let's rip it. Um, Let it rip. Yeah. I, I don't remember the words because <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't, I don't deal with that. I deal with images and feelings, but I, I, it makes me so happy to have the show to talk about that it exists in the world that we have Jeremy Allen White's performance, which for the second straight year, we just critically undervalue in a way because it's so fucking amazing. Yeah. And I, I want to add, 
I, I don't know whether it was on Instagram or like a newspaper. There was a, there was a, there was a picture of Jeremy Allen White, the actor, like, uh, you know, the kind of photo you take for a newspaper story about the show. Uh-huh. And I was like, there is not a trace of Carmi in this person in this picture at this moment. Interesting. His body was different. His face was different. He smiles different. He smiles. And the degree to which he becomes this brooding, intense genius is really incredible. It, it, Think about, we, we, we always talk about how amazing he is supporting everyone else and being the wall that they're bouncing their ball off of. And then in that last scene with Richie, he's the wall and the ball and both rackets. Yeah. Same character. It doesn't work without him. Um, I'm sure that we'll talk, we really want to talk to Christopher Storer. Hopefully mm-hmm. we'll keep talking about the bear. I was just going to ask, so you think more Jamie Lee, probably down the line. For... Like in a, in a like a, a likely and if not guaranteed season three, yeah, there'll be a season three. Um, we we already got the email we expected, which from FX PR being like the most watched, the yeah. most blah blah blah. Like it's a huge it's a huge hit for them, and it's something they're really proud of. And also, the the people involved in this season tell you how highly the show is thought of within the creative community. Oh fuck the yeah! So yeah, yeah. There's no question it's coming back, but they just haven't announced it yet. But um, yeah, I mean. The, the first season was, what do we do with this? And then this was, can we do it once? And it's like, now how do you, what happens when we get reviewed? What how, happens when somebody quits? What happens when... How do you do it again? Yeah. You know, they, there's plenty there. And I think if we, hopefully when we get to What happens Chris, when Chris Ryan opens an artisanal Bacardi and Coke uh, restaurant shop. right across that, the street? It closes at three. <laughs> <laughs> also... Low-key. Authentic sandwiches, but all we serve is rum and coke. The, the, the cannoli was great, but also the show knows what's up. Because what was the single, like, eating and drinking moment that looked the best in the entire finale? It was when um, Neil and, what's his name, the other dude, um, it's Gary. Yeah. They're sitting on the bench eating a hot dog and drinking Estella. Or yeah. Peroni or whatever it is. Yeah. That looked good. That was my Bacardi. Bacardi and Coke. All right. Let's get into my interview with Charlie Brooker. This is a long episode. Thank you. Thank you for doing this today. Uh, thank you to Kaya for producing. Were you thanking me or the listeners? For everybody. Uh, so I will say at the top here, this is a full spoiler episode, not only for the most recent season of Black Mirror, but there are spoilers for assorted other episodes throughout the uh, run of Black Mirror. One of the interesting things that we talked about is the idea of whether or not Black Mirror can only be watched once and mm. whether or not once it's you find sort of find the turn in each episode, like whether those episodes could be recontextualized in some way. I'll hmm. put it that way. I'm not going to step on Charlie's story. Charlie Brooker was awesome. We talked for about an hour about each episode of this most recent season and also its creative roots in the things he was doing and thinking about during the pandemic. And hmm. it was just like a really cool, open and flowing conversation. So yeah, obviously it kind of helps to have seen all the episodes in this new season of Black Mirror. But you know what? You could do a lot worse with your time than to watch Black Mirror. I'm going to listen to this interview. All right. Which is something I say about all your interviews, but especially this one. Do you say that to Terry Gross? Do you just write her a note and just be like, I'm going to listen, Terry? And she goes, Andy, thank you for joining me. I do. On Fresh Air. First of all, don't play with my fantasies like that. (laughs) But yes. Yes, I listen to What would you do if Terry Gross was like, Andy and Chris, you're going to be on the pod? Yeah. on Not pod, the show, Fresh Air. And then I like just, I completely ball hogged. I was just like, all I did, I just talked the entire time. I cut you off. I basically like elbowed you out of the studio. That would be fine. I think as um, our fellow podcaster, Michelle Obama says, when people show you who they are, believe them, (laughs) you know? So I would just, that would be my attitude. Andy, thank you. 
Thank Charlie Brooker. That's what we're going to listen to now. Thank you to Charlie Brooker. Thank you to Kaya. Thank you to Andy. We'll be back on Wednesday to talk about the finale of The Idol and I'm sure much more. Happy Independence Day, Baranskis. We'll have a playlist up soon. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube. Car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. I'm so honored to be joined again on The Watch Podcast by Charlie Brooker. Charlie, you came on the show in 2019 to run through the episodes of season five. That's right. Uh, We're going to do the same again. I'm so glad to see you. I hope you had an okay last couple of years. And thanks so much for this new season of of the show. Thank you. Um, it's nice to be back. Yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of people, the last couple of years has been a little black mirror. It's been it's been weird, hasn't it? It's been a yeah. lot. It's been a lot. And I think we're only just, you know, we're not even close to really working out what the psychological ramifications of it all are. But I'll keep it light. <laughs> <laughs> I won't go straight there. I can um, count on you for that. Yeah. Yeah, so an interesting, definitely a very interesting couple of years. I was wondering whether coming out of that couple of years and and when you start thinking about making a new season of the show, you know, these episodes are so discreet and distinct from one another. There's some like connective tissue narrative wise that holds them together. But I thought I happened upon maybe a little bit of a theme to the season that I wanted to bounce off of you. And I was, before I did though, I was curious whether or not you... When you write these seasons, do you think about overarching ideas that connect them all? Uh, generally, generally not, is the honest answer. As in, uh, like, 
Now, often when embarking on a season, I've usually got a good idea of what stories I'm going to put in it. And quite often there's like, you know, so I'm thinking, oh, well, I can't do two sort of AI stories in this season, if you sort of mean. So I'm trying to sort of portion it out that way. And sometimes I'm thinking, okay, well, I want one that's romantic. I want one that's like a sort of like nasty, punky sort of like, like, it's gonna, you know, leave you devoid of hope. So I think of it in that, in those terms, rather than big themes overall. One thing that, and now approaching this season was slightly different. I've said this elsewhere. So this season, the episodes were written in the reverse order and it started out with Demon 79, but it was very much a starting thinking, okay, bit of a refresher. I'm going to write a season of Red Mirror. It's going to okay. be Red Mirror. It's going to be horror, crime, mayhem, et cetera, et cetera. That's the, the, the best laid plans change. <laughs> and Red Mirror <laughs> because- was going to be retro. It was going to be set in the past specifically or was it going to be genre stuff now there's quite a few episodes this season that are set in the past and i think that was a sort of consequence of of that starting point because what that did was it it revitalizes how you're thinking about the show because i i certainly came to this season thinking i've done a lot of episodes which are set in a in a near future in a near dystopian future and there's a lot of transparent screens and people crying as their phone destroys their life. And so, and so, and and I just kind of wanted to disrupt that a little bit and change the approach a little. So that was, hence the sort of, in a way, complete cobweb clearer of thinking, I'm going to do a sort of almost a sister season that's, that's, that's almost in a different genre. What it then did was it, it then unlocks the door so you can start doing, so an episode like Beyond the Sea, and again, we can get into these, Beyond the Sea, which is a, in a way, classically Black Mirror premise with a sort of MacGuffin at the heart of it. Whereas I think before I would definitely have been picturing that as set in the near future. Yeah. Or yeah. Like, you know, and it was interesting that I then, had, by then I'd given myself permission to set it in the past, which made it a different, a very different story. Well, what it, yeah. so I'm glad you mentioned this idea of, of like, this of the red mirror idea because this yeah. was something that obviously you've talked about a little bit in relationship mm-hmm. to demon 79 demon 79 and lock henry are my two favorites from this this season and in some ways mm-hmm. i think it, they really scratch my itch for british noir uh, that i have um, gotcha yeah 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 yeah. Wait, demon wait. 79 i guess we can actually go in reverse order if you want yeah. like really reminded me of the david peace yorkshire ripper novels and um, oh, the Red Riding trilogy. Yeah, you know, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Just vibe wise, and just everything is brown. Everybody's smoking. <laughs> and I was curious whether I mean, you obviously will have a much deeper relationship to British crime fiction and British crime television mm. than I would. But what were some of the influences? What were some of the things that you were thinking of when you were writing that and and producing it? So well, so that uh, that story was so it was co co written with um, Bishop yeah. K. Ali, who I right. think is is great. Is uh, she's British as well. She's younger than me, so she's not old enough to remember 1979. And unfortunately, I am. <laughs> I was like eight years old yeah. um, in 1979. And really, I, I don't know what the difference between how a British audience perceives that episode and a, and a more global audience. Because in a way, it's a melting pot of, of so many paranoias, fears, styles. There's, a, there's hints of sort of hammer horror in it. There's, yeah. The, the references are drawn from certainly part of my collective memory of the time, 
sort of nuclear paranoia was starting to creep in around then and like blossomed. It's a strange word to use about nuclear paranoia. But during the 80s, I can't remember at what point the decision to set it then was because we were talking about the idea. And quite often with Black Mirror, what you find is you're, you're discussing one idea and you come up with something else. There was a different story we were discussing that was to do with a serial killer. It was a sort of a Black Mirror take, in a way, on a, on a serial killer story. And then that sort of swerved into a discussion about, well, could you do a kind of buddy movie about it? <laughs> like, could you do a sort of buddy movie, romantic, murderous story? That's where it came from. And then, But originally it was like present day. And then something about 1979 suddenly occurred to me, and it felt like it was an era that was... It was on the cusp of change. There's almost this, in, within that episode, she's sort of gazing at a, a red jacket. That's a little new way. Yeah. yeah. Sort of post-punk. It's almost like there to slightly, as well as like symbolizing danger. And so sort of, it's also slightly symbolizing a new era coming in. It felt like being someone who remembers that time, there were so many musical in, in, uh, pieces we could draw on. And the the sort of, you're right, everything's brown and orange and everyone's smoking. Everyone's very gruff. It's very Northern and very, very British. Uh, it's one of my favourites as well. It's a real, like, overall of everything we've done because it's such a unique and strange beast, that piece. Yeah. It's it's quite hard to classify. And like I said, oh, spoiler alert, hopefully, like people have seen it before, before listening to this, because it becomes a sort of romance in the final yeah. moments. Yeah. It's not completely dissimilar to San Junipero in that way. It's sort of like this love story in the <laughs> face of oblivion kind of thing. And you've got these two incredibly charming leads. And um, it's, I mean, Bisha, Bisha sums it up much better than I can, in a way, in that she was saying, well, this is about finding your companion, finding the person, the, like in the face of oblivion, finding the one you want to be with, finding your people, yeah, so to speak, which is ultimately what it, what it becomes, but it's along the way, it's part horror, part comedy, part, and it's kind of unclassifiable. And that's one of the things I really, I really like about it because again, it's, it's in my view, it's kind of mission accomplished in that it's extremely, it's both very much a black mirror episode and also not at all at the same time, if you see what I mean. Yeah. yeah. And that's the red mirror label. And then yeah. the, the other four episodes while, also doing these different eras. You have the 60s for Beyond the Sea of the, yeah. the 2000s, the yeah. mid or earlier 2000s uh, mm. with Maisie. It does mm. feel like they're like distinct from the way Demon was shot, uh, the way Toby shot it and like the kind of yeah. cinematic references that you guys were playing with. I was curious why, what was it about the earlier 2000s that made you want to set Maisie then? Because... I remember that as like a sort of emerging toxicity <laughs> and the blogosphere at that time. But what was it? A, what was it about it for you? Well, and also, so one thing I should probably say up for, up straight away in a, in a way is that that was shot as a red mirror as well. Okay, and I actually we made up some titles that said red mirror that are very much like our old black mirror titles, and I put them on. And then I thought, oh, this sort of tells you what's going to happen. Like, weirdly, this like, and so we took them off. And then I went, no, 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 I've got to put them back on. <laughs> and so I put them back on, took them off, put them back on, took them off. And I couldn't decide whether that that should go out labeled Red Mirror, that particular episode or not. And I was, I was, it's sometimes you get so close to something, you can't, 
you know what I mean? You can't decide. And I kept changing my mind right up to the last minute. Tried to change it again as well at one point. And I, I sort of, I'm tempted to go back and change it again at some point. Maybe have well, a, that is a the poll. nice thing about Netflix. You can never, you can, you can always update the album there. You know. Well, I think that's probably a box they don't want to open too wide because you could, <laughs> do you mean you could go back and change almost anything? I know certainly. I mean, I, th- I think there's been things in the past they've changed, but like you know, now that people have seen the app and they know what happens in it, I could go back and change it. To yeah. Like, maybe I should run an Elon Musk style poll. So is it just <laughs> essentially that like the werewolf is given away somewhat in the... It was, this This was my concern <laughs> at, the, at the start was that, are we giving that too much away? Hence the Red Mirror, Black Mirror, sort of my agonizing over that. Um, why it was set there was, I mean, I think it's fairly clearly, and in my head, so... Prior to Black Mirror, I did a show called Dead Set, yeah. which I think is on Netflix in the US. I'm not sure. It was, it, was, it was like a prototype Black Mirror in many ways, but it was a zombie horror that we played straight. And it was, uh, there's an apocalypse breaks out in the around the Big Brother house and the, and the housemates, the contestants are the last people to find out. So it was taking, it was a piece of media satire, really. And so Maisie, I'd been, like a lot of people, by the way, one thing, another thing to say is you can see that a lot of the stuff in this season was born of the pandemic where I was watching a lot of TV. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> like a lot of people, I watched like Britney Spears documentary mm-hmm. and it was sort of born of that. So that's why it was. it's sort of set there. It was like, A, it's like the time just before. It was So it was a time before people had, everyone had smartphones. So the paparazzi were a lot more powerful, I, I guess, then, or they certainly probably were more prevalent now everyone is a potential pap yeah basically so it made sort of sense to set it then and it was it was i'd had an idea for a a story i wanted to do a while ago about an unscrupulous pap who hides a camera to try and the idea at the time was somebody hides a camera to try and catch a starlet sort of doing drugs or something and discovers they're a shape-shifting alien basically and it was a sort of a slightly tongue-in-cheek horror romp. And that's what this became, because it was I was watching one of those documentaries and it was a it was a strange time and people were, you know, hunted down. And, yeah. and there was a pack of a pack of animals following them. So it just became a bit of a in a way shaggy dog story, uh, almost literally, like where it's like, well, what if you flip that round and you literally make the paparazzi become the quarry? And that's why that was set then. And it was also, and then you've got a sort of pattern where you're thinking, well, am I are we setting all the what if, what if Beyond the Sea gets set in the past as well? If you see what I mean. So we actually almost, if we'd done them in a slightly different order, they would have literally been going. They're chronological. Back to the time in, yeah. In, chronolo- in reverse chronology. Yeah. I do want to digress here because this is mm. the the idea of doing something before the prevalence of the iPhone or the smartphone has come yeah. up a couple of times in our conversation. I was just reading an interview with Steven Soderbergh. He's got a show coming out on HBO, and he was talking about how. The smartphone is the worst thing to ever happen to filmmaking because nobody has to talk to anybody anymore. You can just, it's all texting. Any question is answered by Googling. Any, you can film anything. You can always find somebody or something. You're never lost. And out of this interview, I saw some discussion where someone had actually listed all the movies that had been made by, I think, 10 or 11 of like would would be largely agreed upon to be the best filmmakers in the world like PTA, Scorsese, Guillermo del Toro like going through this list and nobody had made a contemporary movie in something like 12 years 
they had all been all of their films had been period pieces That's and it really was interesting discussion that essentially that like it's almost impossible to tell an interesting story where a smartphone has also been used. <laughs> or you get something like Bodies, 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 where they yes. lose reception and it's yes. sort of like they lose their coverage and it's it's a it's sort of a major plot point in there. Um, starting out with Demon and making it, well, this is the reverse of what I expect from a Black Mirror episode. Yeah. And starting from that, it's interesting that I don't know and again, you can, I mean, the thing is, there's always contrivance, isn't there, in anything? I mean, still to this day, you see scenes where, and you don't notice or care, I think, most of the time as a viewer. You see things all the time in, in shows where somebody has basically driven across town to have a five-sentence conversation yes. with someone yes. and then leave. <laughs> and if anyone you knew did that in real life, you'd think they're a psychopath. Like, yeah, I have not had a single be... friend drop by in eight years. <laughs> yeah, just drop by. I just came by to tell you yeah. that, you know, the department's throwing you out sort of thing. It's like that. It's, 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 it's conversations like that. And then they get in their car and leave. Um, so that's sort of always happened. But I suppose I hadn't thought about the fact that it is, you're right, that the the number of, I guess you just have to hide it. I mean, I suppose, I, I also, I suppose there is a, there is, we're, we're seeing more, I, again, like something like Demon, the idea was for it to feel a bit like a lost movie from the, the late seventies that also is shot through with a modern yes. yeah. sort of sensibility. And there's a lot of that going on generally in the culture at the moment, anyhow. So in that respect, I was again, probably being heavily influenced by like even stuff like Mad Men, you know, which which looked like a nineteen sixties uh, sumptuous sort of uh, feature, effectively. But I hadn't thought about that. That it's <laughs> it's, it's better than having to say, oh, uh, I, well, and we've got another episode where somebody a character looks at their phone and has no reception. That's a, a plot point. So we had to do it in another episode that's sort of set now. Yes, um, for that exact reason. So you're right, and also I guess beyond the sea selling it in 1969, maybe subconsciously I'm doing that because they can't just pick up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, you know, they have this technology in their dog tags where they can they can yeah. jump into each other's subjective experiences, but they can't FaceTime with their wives, you know, right? Like, no, exactly. <laughs> and when, like, there's a moment where David, Josh Hartnett's character, is watching the funeral, uh, watching a funeral, which was always... For me. Now again, somebody somebody pointed out to me that that episode. And sorry, we've segued into it, but but so beyond the sea, that episode, it was an idea that I'd had in my sort of mental rolodex of Black Mirror ideas. I haven't done yet. It was an idea I'd had for a while, and then it felt like something told me, oh, it feels like this is the right time to do it. Somebody said at some point when I finished the script. And I handed it to someone and they said, this is a pandemic story, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And I sort of thought, oh, I hadn't, I suppose it's the ultimate working from home. Well, like, even parable in many ways. the, the yeah. Aaron Paul character with, with Kate Mara moving, Cliff moving to the country. He's in the countryside. You know, and it's important yeah. that my boy run around in the fields and st like all that stuff that was so prevalent, you know. So vital. And the idea is... I don't, we don't quite ex exactly spell it out. I have seen some people saying, 
Why are the robot versions of this? So for people who haven't seen it, well, you should have seen it because people, I, we're, we're, we'll put a spoiler warning assume, at the top. We'll yeah. assume. But so they've got, so there's like kind of robotic avatars of them on earth and they, the actual physical human is up in, in space. And the idea is that they're spending most of their time embodying the sort of mechanical avatars, so to speak, on earth. And then every so often when there's an emergency or for regular physicals, they sort of effectively transfer their consciousness back to the ship. And I've seen people saying, why isn't it the other way around? That doesn't make any sense. Why isn't it the other way around? Well, we do say <laughs> in the story that part of the point of the mission is to see, is to do with survival. We, we hinted at there's also plant life on board that ship. Yeah. It's to do with their sort of, it's partly, we never explain exactly what the mission is, but it's to do with seeing whether humans can survive, whether this is, you can transport biological human beings over a large space for a long time and the and the idea of the mechanical avatars is to keep them sane that was sort of part of it which again is a sort of is a very you know because we all went through a, a lot of we all had to suddenly grapple with isolation you know so it, it's sort of speaking to that which is probably why it felt somebody pointed out to me there's a sort of hippie gang that show up near the start and commit a terrible act and um somebody said to me and they all refer to, they've all got like, they're all like Theta Kappa. They've all got names like that. Yeah. And somebody said, well, those are all Greek letters. That's like coronavirus variants, right? Oh, man. I, and I was thought like, about oh, that. <laughs> oh, God. I just stared at a wall for a bit after that because I hadn't, that wasn't a conscious thought. <laughs> do you know what I mean? That wasn't a conscious decision to do that. But when they pointed it out, I was like, should I change it? I hope we don't. And at the time, I think Omicron, we were up to Omicron or something. So I, I you, think. you'll eventually, it, one day, like, somebody will be watching Beyond the Sea and we will probably have. We'll have Theta and Kappa. Like, yeah. you know, but I was thinking, oh God, I hope that doesn't happen before. The fascinating thing for me about Beyond the Sea, I'm so glad you said that thing about they have a specific mission that never really fully gets revealed to yeah. us. But obviously, it's more important than moving moon rocks back and forth or watching yeah. weather systems because there's this feeling that they can't abandon the mission. There's something significant. They can't. It's because they're so far out is the logic. They're so far away. It would take them years to. So it was sort of also the sort of prisoner's dilemma of it, I, I guess at the end is that they, it's, it's, you can't, if one of them dies, actually they're both probably going to die. Up right. There. So, so they're, they're sort of reliant on each other. They're too far gone to turn back. Yeah. I was also wondering whether or not when you sketch out a piece like that mm -hmm. is, is so for as much as there's information that's not on screen or explicit about that mission, how much do you think about this slightly altered 1960s America? And because I was, I was kind of curious about, like, I thought that the reasoning behind the Manson esque attack that happens mm -hmm. was so fascinating, but it was almost like, I was like, I wonder if, Charlie is sort of suggesting that something like this was inevitable, given the sort of the context of the time of the of the late sixties and and like any uh, sort of variation of reality, something mm -hmm. like this happens almost. It was almost so. Again, I think the thought process was, or, or the way I was seeing it was, so that, so I had, like I said, I'd had the idea for a while, but in the original, like my conception of it 
by the way, at one point it was under the sea. It was literally under the sea at yeah. one point. They were going to be sort of in an aquatic base or something. But um, the idea was... That would have been a, a very timely... Uh... <laughs> I know. I'm like, exceptional. I mean, that was a... Oh, God, that whole story was horrendous. But the the um, originally it was going to be a forest fire that wipes out one of the one of the families, mm-hmm. like by you know accelerated climate change that you know that sort of thing, um, natural disaster. And then when I sort of thought after doing Demon Seventy Nine or after writing Demon Seventy Nine, I thought, well, what if this was set in a different time? I think it was just I, I was walking. I sometimes like to try and get out of the house and go for a run or walk if I'm thinking about things, and I think. Quite often I find, like, music is just will sort of prompt all sorts of ideas. And I was listening, I think, a piece of music, but the Beatles came on or something like that. It Maybe it was, um, maybe it was around, because I'd watched Get Back, like a lot yeah. of people. And so I think a bit of the Beatles came from 1969. And I just thought, well, what if that story was set in 1960? Okay. Well, hang on. How would that change things? And I was thinking through, well, does it matter, the technology? Does it matter? No, because it's sort of mag- it'd be magic if we said it now. It's, it's, it's sort of technological magic, really. It's not. It's, and I quite liked the idea of doing this retro-futuristic. It was suddenly very exciting. And then that is the thing that prompts you to think, well, what if it's rather than a, rather than a forest fire? What if it's a, you know, a Manson-style cult who find this, who, are, who find it abhorrent, what's going on here, who find it, uh, who've got a sort of very... Uh, extremist and twisted sort of point of view of what's going on here. And then that sort of speaks to the, it, it also makes it it's a personal, like the violence in this episode is handed down from one person to another throughout. Didn't you wind up shooting that episode in the studio where they shot Get Back? We did. This was, I'm glad you asked me about that because like, this is to me, this was like, now, so it was Twickenham Studios and I hadn't realised when I watched Get Back, I, hadn't, I thought uh, we'd shot at Twickenham Studios before. So we did USS Callister, which was our sort of Star yeah. Trek, effectively, like, you know, homage in season four, was shot on the same stage. And then we were like, we were talking again about we're building a spaceship again on the same stage. And then it suddenly occurred to me, hang on, this is the stage from Get Back. That's, oh, wait, that's the corner that the that George Harrison's Hare Krishna guy was sitting in. I like, like, um, and, and this is set in 1969. So that was a bit, that was a bit spooky when I sort of thought about that. Is it like, I love that about, I was, I was such a bore on that topic. Like anyone who walked in, I was like, did you know, this is the stage. <laughs> like, and not everyone was as interested in me. Yeah. <laughs> there was not as interested as me in that. Yeah. There was this weird period during, I guess, when did that come out? So was that sort of the end of a lot of the work from home stuff? But I feel like I, yeah. I feel like when get back came out and it was watched, I feel like each one of my friends watched it in an, in an out of order. Like one would watch it and right. then another would watch it. So I wound up having the same get back conversation for about, about three months. Right. And I was like, sure, let's let's run it back, man. I know, it's amazing. You can see them in the song. <laughs> I loved that. Like, I loved it. I loved it because it was like, I was expecting to find it. And I watched it with my wife. She's not a huge, well, certainly she wasn't then a huge Beatles fan or anything. We put it, and I said, look, this is about eight hours long. Let's just put it on. We'll just press play. We'll see how far we get. Like, And we sort of hoovered the whole thing up over like three days. And it was like, it was like being transported back to 1969. And the thing I found 
this is a digression, but one of the things I found so fascinating about it was how contemporary the Beatles felt. And it obviously it helped that the you know the footage had all been cleaned up, and it was it's obviously amazing to see some Paul McCartney like create. I think I'd cry if I met Paul McCartney in, <laughs> in real life. Um, you know him creating all this stuff, but they seemed so contemporary. And then when it gets to the end of the of the documentary, and they're doing the rooftop concert, and they go out and there, the the crew is interviewing people in the street. You realise how futuristic the Beatles were. Yeah. Because everyone else is a bit like, they either seem to be a sort of bowler-hatted British gent going, well, oh, what's that going on? Uh, the Beatles is the most admirable. Uh, oh, wonderful. Uh, it's uh, jolly good. Um, or it's sort of like, you know, almost like a Cockney window cleaner walking past, like going, oh, what a song, Governor, what's, what the Beatles is it? Oh, yeah, I, I like them, yeah, I had off to And it was like, gee, like the, God, the Beatles were from the flipping future. Yeah, I think all of that must have, in some way, been blasting into my head. I, I again, I don't know at what point I thought maybe we should say this episode in 1969, but it's starting to sound to me like it was midway through Get Back. That's, but that's incredible. It's amazing yeah. where you pull these influences from, but then it's also. I don't know that we'll ever have a time in our lives where we probably watched more stuff uninterrupted than those those two years there. <laughs> No, I know it was, it was insane. So I watched a lot of documentaries as yeah, well. Well, that so goes into Lock Henry, right? Yeah, Lock Henry. So Lock Henry was, and I, and I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a ghoul along with the rest of us in that I, I've watched so many sort of serial killer documentaries and true crime pieces to the point where I think I've run out of murderers. I know, you know, I, I think there should be, there'll be end up being a, a some sort of AI system that generates an endless true crime documentary, making people up uh, as you're watching it. That came about because, again, I was watching TV. It was actually pre-pandemic, to be honest. Pre-pandemic, I was watching a show. With, again, with my wife, so many episodes this season to be. I was watching a show with my wife, and um, we were watching it, and it was a documentary. It was a, true, it was a BBC true crime documentary about something that happened in Scotland and it opened with an amazing sort of drone shot over a lock and a forest and some sad piano playing. We ended up Googling where it was because we wanted to go on holiday there. We did end up going on holiday to Scotland. <laughs> uh, we didn't go there, but we did go on holiday uh, to Scotland. And it just struck me as that's a weird, that's a weird thought, isn't it? Um, yeah. That that's what, and so the idea that, oh, this would become a tourist draw was one of the sort of starting points for that. And then and then I and then, and then it sort of became that's the reaction to that episode has been fascinating to, to me. That was my, something that's my favorite. That's your, that's yeah. your favorite. Well, yeah. it's and I'm really pleased because well, I mean, you know, hey, I love them all. I love all our episodes, but it's interesting with that one while making it. I forget. So while, while, while working on the script and writing it, I forget that it's quite scary. <laughs> like, so, so it's interesting that I've seen people's reactions. Some people are like finding it incredibly disturbing and incredibly scary. And incredible. My worry was, oh, are people just going to see this as a slightly detached, dry media satire? Because partly because of the way the ending, that it becomes this sort of, you know, that we we sort of jump out of the 
we, we've been following the story, not not quite in real time, but we've been following the story. Suddenly we jump ahead and we show you a trailer for the for the finished yeah. streambery production that um, uh, Davis ends up sort of being interviewed in. And I was my worry was people are going to see this as a piece, a slightly dry bit of media criticism. And I think that's partly simply because being so close to something, being on it, being knowing from the beginning what the twist is going to be and what the you you can lose sight of the power of that moment for people like when it's when Monica Dolan is again spoiler alert I've just said it but when um, <laughs> Monica who who plays uh, Janet that I, I I had lost sight of how disturbing people would find that moment and then it was gratifying that people have embraced that episode I think was I'm a Mahala Herald. Like uh, she's great, yeah. Long term investor in her, and she she's so good in this. And yeah. this Lock Henry actually brings me to uh, I teased this earlier that the the idea that I wanted to bounce off you is like the mm-hmm. unifying kind of theory of this season. Oh which yes, is yes, yes. The original conceit of the documentary that they're going to make about the egg mm-hmm. guy, uh, yeah. and this idea that he is the last thing standing between the commodification of nature, right? And the right. Commo- and I kind of think, in a lot of ways, each one of these episodes could be distilled down to something fairly natural being corrupted. So mm-hmm. in Beyond the Sea, it's like the, your subjective experience and the corruption mm-hmm. of that through the technology that they're exploiting. And this idea that the only way to tru- for these two guys to truly know one another is for mm-hmm. the other to experience the most horrific thing that could possibly happen to another yeah. person. And then... In Maisie, it's the sort of corruption of privacy or the corruption Mm -hmm. of like the individual self. And, you know, I just, I thought that it was just like a very interesting idea that it's almost a throwaway line in Locke Henry. And I I was curious whether or not you gave much thought to the egg guy or whether that was a little bit of a thread that you were pulling on. You know what? I should say, yes, it was, but I I think you've stumbled across. Again, I think it's a bit like the, I think it's like, a bit like the pandemic comment that somebody made about beyond. I think that, I think certainly it's not something I was consciously aware of, put it that way. I think that certainly generally in black mirror, there tends to be, it's often about authenticity and reality generally at, at, at like, and again, that's not something I'm going into it thinking about, but that's yeah. quite often. Even if you look at like say demon 79, there's a question throughout of like, is this happening? Is this not happening? Is this, you know, or um, beyond the sea? It's like, where are their authentic set? Like, you, you, like it's something about the detachment of those things. Well, I thought I that guess that's another way of. I thought yeah. that throughout Joan is awful because I was like, there yeah. is a certain surreality or plasticity to like her job and like all these things. Where you're like, this is just far enough removed from real reality that I'm wondering what's going on here. Yeah, 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 and then and then we pull out to reveal that it yeah. was it was that was fun. I mean, again, that was that was a that was another. I was watching TV with my wife because <laughs> the, there was the pandemic had been happening, and you get into a also. We've got two young youngish kids. We spend a lot of like uh, the, the evening revolves around what are we going to watch for fifty eight minutes now the kids are in bed and before yeah. we fall asleep sort of thing. Um, and I was watching the dropout. And it was, you know, and it was, it was, it was partly that I was watching the dropout, the, 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 the Elizabeth Holmes drama. 
And there was a sort of like, wow, this seems to be dramatising something that happened 10 minutes ago. Wouldn't it be odd if there's an episode where she switches on the TV and she sees the dropout? Right. <laughs> it was sort of the thought, which then unlocked. I was also thinking about an idea to do um, a news channel that uses sort of deep fake AI content to make like constant fiction. Uh-huh. If you sort of mean, I might still go back to that idea because it's a fun idea. And then there was something I wanted to do about sort of main character syndrome on social media. So <laughs> an idea, an idea about like a, an average woman finds she's on the front page of the newspaper because her co-workers don't like the way she chews food or something like small like that. And those ideas that you're watch, watching the dropout and, and, and the thought like, well, what if you switched on the TV and there was a show about you? That makes that becomes a lightning rod for all those other ideas to sort of come together. And it was it was such an absurd idea. Now, usually in Black Mirror, we take absurd ideas and play them straight. Mm-hmm. Like by and large. There's often, I think, probably a lot more humor than I think sometimes people maybe give the show credit for or notice. <laughs> but we're just bad at adding humor in um, throughout throughout a lot of the episodes. But with Joan, it felt like well, the way to approach this, let's do an all-out comedy episode. Let's just go, let's go for it sort of thing. And so it was fun to do. It's, again, it's a fascinating thing to me to see. This season, a thing I've noticed is, so every season we've done, people always rank them. And they yeah. say, that's my favourite. Didn't like that one. That was my favourite. And, and that was my least favourite. And usually you find a, a very clear consensus over what are people's favourites emerges really quickly. And I've noticed more variation in this season, I think, overall than I've ever have before. And that's that <laughs> that means we're <laughs> we've got something for everyone, and also something that no one likes. <laughs> we've got something you'll love and something you'll hate, presumably. But I think that's possibly because this season has got the wildest diversion of styles that we've ever done, which was a deliberate thought going in. Was okay, I'm gonna keep pushing the the confines of what this is so. So we've got so something like Joan, which is sort of farcical and, and heightened and goofy and has a big comedy cast. And it, it's interesting to me that you'll get some Black Mirror viewers embrace that and love it. And others go, I don't want comedy in my Black Mirror. Right. Yeah. right. And, and, and it's to me, it's all the same. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's hard for me. And it's partly because, like, I also do comedy shows and I love that was that's sort of my background prior to Black Mirror in the UK. I did a show that's also you can find on Netflix, did a show, there was a co-production with the BBC called Kunk on Earth, which is- Yes, like a, yeah, one of our favourites oh, of the year here, yeah. Oh, good. Oh, well, great. I'm, yeah. And well, it was fascinating to me to see that go up on Netflix outside of, so it was. It went out on iPlayer here, BBC iPlayer last year. And then this year, that went out. And I get, to me- <laughs> Philomena Kunk could almost be in a black mirror. Like you could almost, I could, I could imagine doing like a Kunk on AI black mirror episode, but I don't know that black mirror viewers, but I, it's, it's interesting to me. It's all like, this is all coming out of my head. So there's often going back to that, that, that thought about what's the thread that links things to me. There's a psychological thread that's going through. That's just like, well, on some level, this is all my, this must be my taste on some level. I like, Sometimes I like a broad comedy where a woman defecates in a church and, <laughs> and, and, and uh, at the other end of the spectrum, you get a sort of Lock Henry where it's like a devastate, you know, this horrific things yeah. happening and it's devastating. I, for, for what it's mm. worth, I have noticed the exact thing that you're pointing out, which is, yes, there are, for some reason, I think because they're 
it's an anthology style show. I think people mm-hmm. like to rank it because yeah. you can look at these things discreetly. But then I have also noticed in my conversations with friends about the show that I've articulated that my my Black Mirror is yeah. White Bear and Metalhead and Lock Henry. That's and, your profile. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And it's yeah, the yeah. darkest possible, scariest possible. The most sort of brittle pitiless it's the pitiless <laughs> end of the black mirror spectrum yes is that the wicker man it's the it's the end of the twilight ozone episode with burgess meredith meredith breaking his glasses yes it's that sort of merciless so that's what you like yes and <laughs> i i like entire history of you and i like sandra DePero and i like i liked some of those sweeter mm-hmm. ones but for some reason i remember i think white bear was the one that i saw where i was like is this my favorite show I don't, you right. know, like, you know, this is, this is yeah, the one yeah, that yeah. has tapped I love in. White Bear. I love, well, this is, it's interesting in that White Bear, so, so when, people often say to me, what's your favorite Black Mirror? Like they ask me, what's my favorite um, episode? And that's a really, I can't answer it because A, it, well, it wouldn't be fair because <laughs> like they're, they're all made by different filmmakers, different cut, like they're all, and so you love them all, like your children sort of thing. Um, and also it does change. And I do think it is a wild, the profile of this show is hopefully reflects a lot like, so again, so in my head, it's perfectly like White Bear and San Junipero. Those are probably in a way the two polar opposites tonally, aren't they, of this season overall. If you were going to say, if it exists on a spectrum, you'd probably put White Bear at one end of that. Or national anthem, yeah. maybe, and like something like San Junipero, Hang the DJ, maybe is is another like super sort of sweet. But to me, they're all they're all in the same continuum. Though. But but I can't. But I but I can see. I can see that they are exceptionally different. Like in a way, those those those. those so Locke Henry and Joan is awful are very different tonally, even though they're both arguably media satires. Mm-hmm. Basically, they're both. Um, and so it's interesting to me. I always love, <laughs> it's a fun thing to do in a season is to put in a handbrake turn like that, like to go from Joan, which obviously is a, it's a, you know, it's a crowd pleasing, uh, you know, it's a, it's a big crowd pleaser, basically. So you get, you, 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 you similar to, we opened season three with, um, Nosedive, which was yeah. quite a crowd pleaser. Season four, USS Callister, quite a crowd pleaser. And then you do a hard turn <laughs> into yeah. just as you think you know what you're getting, we sort of crunch your face into a Lock Henry <laughs> or a shut up and dance or something like that. And that's kind of deliberate. It's sort of a mission. It's it's as close as we get to a mission statement, I guess, in some ways, or it's a certainly a, but it is a bit mad, isn't it? It's a bit like buying an album and the, like it opens with a, disco number and then suddenly there's like a well you put your hits up top and then you put the complicated art track second you know like yeah complicated art tracks it's it's i can never we always the i mean that's the other thing is that working out the order of the episodes is always a real headache because you cannot predict and it's i think especially with this season because again the attempt was make them feel more different to each other than other seasons have okay that was so if there was a sort of thought, again, like, as I've said, it sort of changed tack, like, partway through, went from Red Mirror to Black Mirror, but but there was definitely an attempt to push so that you're constantly, <laughs> so that it, they, they all feel very different to each other. And I think we have achieved that 
it's interesting to see. I think that's that's then that's probably explaining why I think people are ranking them so differently. Yeah. But that has been historically that's been the case. I've seen the same. I've seen I've seen Metalhead, for instance. Metalhead is another very divisive episode from season four. Black and white robot dogs running around like a uh, Maxine Peak, and I've seen that at the top and bottom of some of those like when people curate lists. Sure. Like here's all the episodes ever ranked, and I've seen arg- strong arguments for it to be at the top or the bottom from people. Which is national anthem is another one. The the prime minister, the very first one. It's it's quite a, as we would say, marmite here in the UK. <laughs> it's, our notorious, it, yeah. Yeast extract spread that advertises itself as a product you will either love or hate. <laughs> but I suppose it's weird that we've got that within overall seasons of the of the show. All right. So before I let you go, I want to ask you one more question. I think I asked a variation of this in 2019, but I, I feel like it's fair to check in. Which is, I now uh, it's pretty obvious that Black Mirror can be Red Mirror. It can be a comedy. It can be a horror story, or what? It, it can be anything you want it to be. So in that sense, do you view Black Mirror as like the bucket you can literally put any story you're (laughs) interested in telling in? Or are there things that you think of ideas that you have that you don't feel like would fit in Black Mirror? I think it's interesting because that that slightly speaks to my Red Mirror versus Black Mirror quandary that I had this, this time around. I don't think there's a tone that you wouldn't explore is maybe the way I'd answer it in, yeah. in a way. Like I'd still think I'd still go to bat for like an animated episode or a musical episode or a Victorian period drama. You know, like, like, so I think in terms of the, the overall tone, I think it's the, the, the all bets are off. I think, Oh, I don't know. Because to my mind, there's always an element. There's all if there's not an area, if it's not examining some sort of dystopian technological what if kind of thing, then there's an element of media satire, generally speaking, going mm-hmm. on, or societal comment. Again, something like Demon is it Maisie is a is a satire on that 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 sort of time and that era and that sort of environment. So is Demon, but I would class those as Red Mirror, I guess. And you can make the argument that they are engaging through screens in a way it's just different they, screens to, they we, totally yeah. are they totally it's interesting because bandersnatch we did bandersnatch which was i get was actually the one sort of technological thing going on in it mainly obviously he's writing a video game he's writing a computer game in 1984 in that but it was the the the, the medium via which you were sort of watching this the interactive aspect was the sort of most in a way black mirror element i don't i don't know is the answer i mean i think that it's interesting. I think I'm always going to be drawn towards kind of like you say, like one instinct I always have is to create a, a white bear feeling mm-hmm. <laughs> per season. And now having done when we first were like writing San Junipero was a definite first attempt to sort of broaden what the broaden the tone of the show romance seems part of it. Like I always want to do yeah. a romance. So I don't, I honestly don't know. I guess I'll find out <laughs> when I finally do an episode that like makes people physically attack me. <laughs> That's when I know that it's it's interesting because like I say to me, they're all 
they're more alike than they it's only if i step back and look at them i go what the hell like this is a bizarre show this really is that it's a, such a selection box of we always used to say it like it's a box of chocolates and you don't know what you're going to get. It's always going to, but you don't know what the filling is, but it's always dark chocolate. Yeah, yeah. That is the case, but we do have like, it's quite strong lemon flavors up against like caramel and like, do we like so? So it is a whole, I don't know. It's interesting though, because, because the other thing is that obviously having, having done a season where I was like, well, I'll blow the cobwebs out. I'm not going to, I'm going to not allow myself in a way to do an episode that's, kind of like ones we've done before, what inevitably happens is that, that it meant that there's a lot of ideas I haven't done. Sure. And there's a lot of ideas. The other, that's another thing that's probably worth pointing out, actually, is when I was, when I started this season, partly part of the thought for starting there was that it felt a bit, during the pandemic, it felt like things had plateaued a bit. Partly we were all on Zoom. And it was, as in the, in terms of tech, the, the disruptive nature of technology, sure. it felt like things were at a sort of, now, now suddenly everyone's talking about, AI, chat GPT, it's like the front page of the Elon Musk buying Twitter. All of this stuff is sort of suddenly frothing again. And so my head is full of what you might call trad mirror sort of yes. thoughts. Yes. <laughs> so so it's interesting to think, you know, do you do your yeah, it's interesting to so I've got I, my head's full of stuff. I love the taxonomy of Black Mirror that you've got, where it's almost like it's post-punk, but then there's no wave, but then there's two-step, but then there's, and it's all happening at the same time, but you have trad mirror, red mirror, you know. Well, in my head, so I would say on the show, I'll go, well, that's quite a trad mirror idea, isn't it? Like beyond the sea, I was like, well, that's very trad mirror, the, 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 the fact that it all hinges on this, because it hinges on a sort of technological device that's, wrecking these people's lives right but it's not the device that's doing it it's the it's the people it's a compulsion yeah yeah and and joan is awful it's a very trad mirror premise in a way in that it's a an existential nightmare and a very i mean and in that case very tight like weirdly timely i didn't know writing that how timely that would be because that was written it was the last one to be written and shot but it was we wrapped just like just before like chat gpt came out yeah so but i'd seen stuff like mid journey like the ai image generating stuff like i'd see i was that was in my head but um again that i said i kept saying well that's very trad mirror that one and sometimes i talk about something like lock henry i was i would say oh yeah okay and that's our Maybe I need to a phrase for it, Brit Mirror or something. Like that's like very Ooh, like yeah. national anthem, shut up and dance. Do you know what I mean? It's that sort of gritty, grimy, sort of like grey sky, sort of horrible stuff happening <laughs> in the United <laughs> Kingdom. Sort of seems to be one of the. Do you know what I mean one of the? It, I'd love it if at some point. In the future on Netflix, you could rearrange the episodes as playlists order like that, and yeah. do a season that's like Brit Mirror, like you know what I mean, like 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 the the, the happy ones. <laughs> no, that's like, a, like, but that's like making a playlist on Spotify where you're just like, well, this is only for when I am cooking alone and it's cloudy out, you know, and exactly, yeah. Well, I mean, or, it's, or you get like you'll get, you're right, yeah, it's exactly that. It's like this is your. When Spotify goes, this is your running mix. This is cooking. This is easy, like Sunday morning. There's like, it's, it's, yeah, it's those. There's a black mirror for every mood. <laughs> <laughs> I say that. I mean, now is there a black mirror for every mood? Certainly, quite often people say to me, 
I get people who say, oh, I've, uh, I haven't, apologetically, they'll say, I haven't seen your show. Not that anyone has to apologise in this day and age when there's so much, so many shows that you could watch. Like why anyone would say, I'm sorry, I haven't got round to your show yet. And they often say, because yeah, it sounds scary. Yeah. Or something like that. And so then I'm like, well, watch Sanji Napero, watch Nosedive, or watch Hang the DJ, or watch Joan is Awful. You could watch that. There's elements, USS Callister, there's elements in there that are sort of scary, but it's generally, those are the more popcorn, crowd-pleasing end. Like, yes, you know, yeah. they're, 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 they're more, I still haven't done one that my kids could watch. That's the next challenge. <laughs> Kid Mirror. That's great. See, that could be another another vertical. <laughs> Black Mirror Junior. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what would that be like? <laughs> um, thing is, my kids are getting older, so it would be like, so they soon they'll be able to watch it. And then, uh, yeah, you know, I'd do like a Zucker Brothers Black Mirror episode to be fair. Oh my God, I, that would be got, amazing. Like, I did pitch mirror. that at one point. I know I wanted to do, again, I, pro- I probably shouldn't say too much because it might be something I do <laughs> at some point. But it's again, again, I did it because I did a show in the UK called A Touch of Cloth a few years back that was like, like if you imagine ultra dark naked gun. Okay. And it was, it was John Hanna who's in Lock Henry. Yeah. It, it, it stars in it and it was it was a parody of ultra dark bleak detective shows and we did a couple of seasons of it and it was one of my most fun projects to do we shot it at the same time as the first season of black mirror and it would like it was fascinating to go from one oh, set cool. to the other comedy obviously it's a lot more tense because there's a constant concern that because it has to be funny all the time but so but i would i would sort of embrace that at the same time as doing an episode that's like even darker than <laughs> white bear or even darker than, you know, well, well for my purposes, I hope that you, you know, you keep mining that white bear metalhead. That that's going to, that's always, that's going through it like a stick of rock. I don't, is that a thing? Is that, do you have sticks of rock in the UK? No. US? Okay. <laughs> stick of that's butter, an analogy yeah. that, that yeah. doesn't make any sense. That's going through it like a, I don't know, like a, like a vein in a fish <laughs> that's always going to be there that's always going to like a fault in a rock <laughs> that that's always going to be part of it if you did a season and there wasn't one that left people like utterly depressed and miserable you failed <laughs> i know i would feel like i didn't get my money's worth um exactly charlie thank you so much for being so generous thank with your you. time and thank you for this season it's excellent um and i hope people get a chance to listen to this as they as they've after they've finished the season thanks so much man thank you thank you This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.